Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Today, we're going to talk with somebody who has been a two-time athletics director and is currently a vice president of Collegiate Sports Associates, Brad Bates. Brad has had a very unique career, not only as, a, as an athletics administrator at some big schools, including a vice uh, a, um, athletics associate athletics director at Vanderbilt University, but also being an AD at Miami University of Ohio and an AD at Boston College, he's had a chance to look at college athletics inside the Division I ecosystem, but also from the perspective of where is higher education going with this? I've invited Brad to talk to me today a little bit more about his relationships with his presidents, his boards of trustees, and then also we're going to talk about a, a new case study that he and another colleague put together about how to hire a men's basketball coach in a revenue-producing situation. So Brad, welcome to the podcast. Karen, great to be here. And as I mentioned earlier, I apologize for my appearance. I thought this was an audio interview. and It uh, is. It is an audio interview. So oh, it is. Right? Oh, perfect. <laughs> 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 oh, so I misunderstood both times. That's great. You look great. Yeah, that's great. So, Brad, long, you've been a longtime AD, a longtime person who's thought deeply about the role of college athletics. Let's go back to your role as an athletics director. Talk about the interactions that you would have with your president, with your board of trustees. Maybe we can go over some best practices that you found there. Yes, I... I always viewed my role as uh, serving the mission and vision of the university as set by the trustees and the president. And so for me, uh, it was really having an agenda that was uh, supporting whatever the, that mission and vision were. Uh, but at the, the focal point of it was always, how do we maximize the holistic development of our student athletes and our staff? And so whenever you're within higher education, that's obviously gonna be a focal point for everyone involved. So the relationship needed to be uh, one of over-communicating, especially with the president. And I've been very fortunate to work with uh, incredible presidents, very principled, value-driven uh, gentlemen who uh, just were very passionate about their institutions and their, their education. And they had terrific models of working with trustees. And they were, they were each a little different in how they did that. But the way they set that up also set the example for this, the senior cabinet at the university of which the AD was a part of uh, in my situations and uh, allowed for a really good relationship. There's sort of two ways of looking at this. One is the uh, systematic structure of the institution's governance. And so you have to give annual reports to the trustees, you have to give uh, annual budget updates, and you regularly meet with the president, for example. But there's also that informal side that can overlap into uh, uh, fundraising, alumni engagement, education, admissions, all the aspects that encompass a student athlete's life. So let's, um, Miami and Boston College, two, Similarly sized in terms of enrollment, what are we talking about on each campus? Yes, uh, Miami was a little bit bigger than Boston College, um, especially the undergraduate population, but not not a whole lot, not as much as you would considering uh, it's a public institution and Boston College is obviously private. Um, Boston College is obviously a Jesuit institution, 
and uh, and resides in the Northeast, whereas uh, Miami's a Midwest. And from an athletic perspective, Boston College is in one of the Power Five conferences, and Miami is in one of the Group of Five. So, other than the, if you were to ask me the day-to-day differences, it's really ones on a bigger stage. And when you make decisions, those are going to be a lot more public and um, uh, scrutinized than the other. Also different media markets, I would think, Boston versus, you know, Oxford, Ohio. Difference in terms of media markets. Yeah, Oxford is just a beautiful place and a a lovely campus. But you got to drive past a lot of cornfields to get there. And... uh, BC is in the middle of Chestnut Hill, which is another just fantastic place for different reasons. So there are times when you're looking at a, your relationship and there were times when you really hoped that a president would be actively involved in something that the athletics department is doing. Give us a sense, maybe three things where you really, as an athletic director, appreciated the president's involvement in what you were trying to do. Well, first of all, whenever you're hiring uh, leaders in your athletic department involving the president and getting perspective from the president is really critical. The second one I would answer are legislative um, proposals or changes that are on the docket. So getting the perspective of the president, because ultimately the president's going to be voting, at least in the conferences I was a part of, uh, the president's cast the vote. So we would have a lot of discussion around how we can shape the future of intercollegiate athletics and as well as uh, recruit other presidents and athletic directors and get comparable perspectives to see how that legislation can really impact uh, the future. And then I would say the third thing, there are no athletic directors out there who don't have financial worries, especially right now. And so just budget modeling with the CFO and the president were constant discussions and necessary discussions uh, at the institutions where I worked. And the CFO was the university CFO and the athletics director CFO or? Yeah, I, I, I'm no accountant, so I definitely relied on my CFOs. They, they were the ones that, uh, that put together all the, the hard work. How many, how, how many times, if at all, did presidents run interference with the athletics department and any external stakeholders that might be upset about a coach's hiring or faculty members who were upset about something on their campus? Was the athletic director expecting a president to be an ally all the time? Or how did you see that relationship? From my perspective, it's almost the opposite. The AD should be shielding the president and promoting the president. So whenever there's adversity, you try and keep that adversity away from the president's office as much as possible. I always felt like the university is only as strong as the president. And so anything the athletic director can do to support the president is really important to the entire institution. So for me, it was um, just the opposite of how you described it. If there were people upset about a coaching hire, I tried to run front on that as much as possible. At the same time, I would always be communicating with the president and giving them context for anything that was taking place. So if we had a student athlete issue, if we had a a personnel issue, you definitely want to over communicate 
or the good and the bad, so that the president is aware of everything and not caught off guard or surprised. Talk about the role of the president when you have a, a, a situation that has exploded in the media. Do you want him or her to take the lead? Do you want to take the lead or do you want to work together? Oh, you definitely want to work together. I think it depends on what the situation is. Again, though, and ultimately it's the president's decision. In most instances, depending on the situation, you probably will have the vice president for communications, if it's racist to that level, being the face of the institution. But if there are certain situations that would require the AD or the president to be that face, then, then that's how we would do it. So it was re really situationally driven. But again, I would go back to what I said earlier, as much as possible when there's uh, significant adversity and criticism, you want to protect and shield the president as much as possible while still aligning with the, the president's direct direction and charge for the institution. So if, if I'm, let's say I'm a, a senior leader on campus, I'm not the athletics director and I'm not the president, but I, I serve in on the president's cabinet, let's say. Is there anything I can be doing to support that relationship as, as a member of the senior team, but also not somebody who's directly impacted by, let's say, a public relations crisis? Well, I think the first, first and foremost, the, uh, the, what's the old cliche? You really, you know who your friends are during adversity, right? So I think as, as team members all serving this higher vision that the president and the trustees have set, you need to be consistent in your messaging and supportive in your messaging. And so making sure that there are talking points for the senior staff, I think are really, really critical that are consistent with what people are gonna to say. Today, there isn't just one voice because everyone has an opportunity to express their opinion and perspective and everyone's accessible. And so making sure you anticipate issues in advance so that you have talking points that are consistent with what the president wants is really important, I think. Yeah. yeah. And we're faced so often in the last uh, couple of months with programs that have been on the front pages because athletic directors are trying to find ways to balance their budgets. And sometimes they're doing it at the expense of dropping sports. And there's no better way to get the alumni engaged than to drop sports, it seems like. Yeah. And so uh, alumni will look for any um, uh, lever to pull in order to get the attention of the president or the vice president or even the board chair in this situation. So can you walk us through your thinking in those kinds of situations? How can I get the outside folks to, to come to me versus tracking down the president versus tracking down the board chair? In, in a difficult situation like dropping sports? Yeah, it's so difficult. Uh, and I, I, I wouldn't, fortunately I never had to drop sports. Um, I wasn't in that situation, but I have colleagues and good friends who are in situations where they had to, and it just is no fun. But l even before we dive into that, let me take a step back and, and uh, surprise you maybe a little bit. I can make a very compelling argument that if our justification for the American model of integrating our sports in our educational systems is that the, the act of participating in sports is inherently educational and developmental, I can make a very strong argument that club sports 
are much more developmentally meaningful than varsity sport participation. Mm-hmm. So you, th- you think about it, in club sports, the students pick their coaches, hire and fire their coaches, they recruit their own players, they, they cut their own players, they establish budgets, they propose budgets to usually student affairs, they have to set their schedule, they set up their travel, they set up postseason, they have to do everything. And as you know, Karen, in, in varsity sports, we do everything for the student athletes. Absolutely. And so the developmental part of the students actually participating in almost every aspect of their experience in club sports is much more developmentally meaningful, especially if our varsity coaches aren't connecting the dots between the skills and experiences they're getting in varsity sport participation with future endeavors that transcend athletics which most don't. And so back to the cutting of sports, I think we need to often remind ourselves that as varsity sport sponsors, our athletic curriculum, if you allow me, should be developmentally meaningful in ways that align with the intellectual curriculum they're getting across campus and the social experiences they're having on campus. Now, beyond that, in terms of the, the uh, um, decisions around cutting sports, you know, I I would, athletic directors in really, really difficult situations financially, and a lot of it has to do with the institutional financial situation and their, their historical culture towards sports and the predictability of future revenues against expenses. And so there are very few athletic directors outside of the power five, or I'm sorry, yeah, very few outside the power five who haven't had to model cutting sports or having different sports sponsorships. And it's all grounded in money and how much money the university can afford and how much pressure there is from the institution that athletics is getting too much of our finances and our resources. You also have the the pressure though, even within the ACC, even within the Big Ten, to stay competitive within your conference, to win conference championships. And um, I don't think of Boston College as the largest budget in the ACC by any stretch. And yet you still need to be competitive because the expectation was you were going to have a shot every few years to win a a conference title in a variety of different sports. How do you balance that with your president's understanding that you just don't have the same resources that other schools in the conference do? Yeah, in some ways, you, you've got to attempt to manage expectations as best you can. Boston College has more sports than any other school in the ACC, and yet their budget isn't the highest, and so it just makes sense that their resources per team and per student-athlete aren't going to be as great as maybe some of the other institutions. So to your point, there are haves and have-nots even within Power Five conferences. And so I think it's really critical for the athletic director to establish realistic expectations depending on how the resources are comparable uh, to the other peer institutions. It's, uh, let me jump back to the, uh, the, the decision-making. This whole COVID thing is really an interesting uh, context. It's just bad enough that you have to do something, but it's not so bad that it makes the decisions easy. And, and throw into that mix the economic implications, I think it would be very, very difficult to be a president or athletic director right now. Fortunately, 
uh, there, there seem to be very few lethal health implications to this age group, but it, yes, you, you want to keep your fingers crossed and, and hopefully that will continue. Absolutely. So you talk about messaging and, and managing expectations. Let's now extend the AD's relationship to the board of trustees and probably to the board chair who holds a lot of power on, in a college governance system. What was your relationship like at each of your institutions with the board? And what kinds of things did you appreciate that the board did to support athletics? Yeah, it, uh, both the institutions where I was athletic director, they were very supportive of athletics, very engaged in athletics, but not in a micromanaging hands-on way. Uh, they really relied on the athletic director to uh, keep them appraised on the context and, and where the student athletes needed assistance and support. I think the potential, depending on who your board chair may be, to abuse that relationship is possible if it is someone who's overly zealous about athletics and sports. And so I always felt it was important to make sure my president was aware whenever I had conversations with trustees uh, and the nature of those conversations. And likewise, to let the trustees know that I would share everything that we talked about with the president. And so there was always this continuity that everyone was on the same page and, and aware of what, what the major issues were. Yeah, yeah, no surprises, right? No surprises. But I, I could also see, and we've seen this nationally at times, where uh, a, a rogue trustee will get overly involved in athletics and, and either undermine an athletic director or a president. Yes in ways that damage the entire institution. Yeah, yeah. So having the athletic director and the president be on the same page with regards to the impact of that meddling, if you will, uh, is gonna be really crucial for yes, sure. Yes, and, and trying to keep those conversations as, as uh, direct and not public as possible. Yeah, yeah, makes sense, makes sense. So shifting gears, you yes. and your colleague uh, Jason Belzer have put together a very interesting case study. If you ever wanted to know what goes into hiring a revenue producing coach, and in this situation, a men's basketball coach, how the actual search committee works, but also all the inherent perspective and possibly biases that search committee members bring to that search, you got to read this, this case study. I'm going to put a link to it in the liner notes for this uh, podcast so the folks can see it. But you and Jason put a lot of time into thinking about this, and I think it's incredibly instructive. Just give me a sense of where this idea came from first. Let's start with that. That's interesting. It, uh, Jason had a conversation with one of my colleagues here at Collegiate Sports Associates, Drew Turner, and they talked about uh, having us collaborate on this. So uh, Jason had a construct already in existence from a previous case study that he had designed. And so we bounced this around uh, having actual interviews, as you know, from the case study. And uh, what we really wanted to do was to introduce as much realistic tension as a typical process would involve. And so we created a, a search committee with various perspectives and uh, viewpoints that people portraying those individuals would have to really think about what's at stake. 
And so for some, it was professional aspirations. For others, it was personal relationships. For others, it was petty jealousies. But the reality is, at some point in our careers, we had seen those examples that are in the case study or some version of it. Uh, the, the other part of it was to really compel students and hopefully staff members to engage this concept of student athlete welfare and development. We always talk about that being our priority, but at the end of the day, how often, particularly in our most visible sports, how often winning is really the highest value. Right, right. And, and so we set up a matrix that allows students to play around with how they really would like to, in an ideal world, rank and prioritize their values, but then you pretty quickly see how that breaks down when you apply it in a practical setting. Absolutely, absolutely. And one of the things that you, that you all note is the underlying dynamic in the search for a revenue-producing head men's basketball coach that should be acknowledged is, the, is that the uniqueness of hiring a coach in the sport of men's basketball and why that differs from hiring a track coach or a gymnastics coach or a swimming coach and the different standards of performance accountability that applies to them. Talk a little bit about that. Well, unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, the reality is our society highly values certain sports. And those tend to be the ones that are economically revenue producing for athletic departments. In fact, we've come to cliches that call them revenue producing sports. At some institutions, it may venture outside of men's basketball and football, but those are primarily the two that generate the most revenue. And so they tend to come with different lenses to critique coaches. If, again, back to what I said earlier, we're going to justify uh, integrating our sports and our educational systems, the holistic development of student athletes should be the priority. But no one really clearly defines where winning resides in that definition. Right. In a zero-sum game, where only 50% of the teams are going to win every week. And so if you can make a rational argument that winning is much more developmentally meaningful than losing, then I think that plays into it. But no one really is out there making those arguments. Right, right. It really comes down to we need to make money. We need to fill the stands. We need donors uh, supporting the program. And so the byproducts of winning create this context where we often read about compromise values that are inconsistent from, with the institution. And as you know, when athletics has compromised values at an institution, it's volatile and impacts the reputation and prestige of the entire university. One of the things that I've noticed over the years working in Division One is that not only is the pressure to win, but the pressure is to fill the arena. And, and if fans aren't coming to the games, the implicit reason is, is they don't like the coach or the coach isn't putting a good enough product on the court. And yet I think in this uh, dynamic of changing um, media consumption tastes for you know, the younger generations, if you will, I don't know that going to games is going to be a great measure of how successful and impactful an athletics program and specifically a basketball program is going to be because people will, will might consume it, you know, the last the last quarter they might consume it on highlights or they might consume it some other way. So athletic directors and presidents may have to rethink what the model is 
as far as revenue producing, it can't just be about selling tickets. Yeah, yes, and, and most of those tickets, um, donations are made for the privilege of buying those tickets. Correct, yes. And, and for the privilege of having proximate parking and, and other things. And so there's a whole financial system built around the attendance that's historically based. And uh, right now you're seeing schools reinventing themselves and how they're trying to maximize revenues when, when they can't fill a stadium. Right, right. And the trend is, is in that direction. And we may just have overbuilt so many of our football and basketball facilities because of a whole, and not the least of which is COVID-19 and when's the next time people are going to want to sit in an arena together. Right. Yeah. Not unless there's a really effective vaccine. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Brad, I really want to thank you for spending some time with me and with the listeners to talk about your perspective from this. I, I knew you'd bring a very unique perspective, but I think presidents and those who aspire to become presidents should hear and look for in what their athletic director um, values in their system and how it fits into the institution's mission and values. So thank you. Karen, thank you. I really enjoyed it. It was great to have you. Okay.